Hey gang, thank you for listening to February's edition of Deep Dive. As you guys know, this year we're going to start a new thing. We're going to bring back some of our favorite guests and go deep on an album that they worked on. Maybe they were a session musician and they just played on it, or maybe they produced it, or maybe they wrote and recorded the entire thing. And this week, it is one of my all-time favorites. We're talking to Dr. Robert, frontman for the Blow Monkeys. I love the Blow Monkeys. I especially love their second album from 1986, Animal Magic. That's the one we're talking about today. If you guys know Animal Magic or the Blow Monkeys, you probably remember them from their big hit, Digging Your Scene, which was like top 20 in 1986. I got that album when I was 13 years old, and I thought it was okay. I got it primarily for that song. But over the years, it has grown into being an all-time favorite of mine. And I used to feel really sheepish about that. You know, is Animal Magic by the Blow Monkeys an album that someone who takes pop and rock music very seriously should have in their top 10 albums of all time? I used to wonder whether I should, and I felt weird about it. But nowadays, the more I listen to it, the deeper it resonates with me. You guys know how much I love horns. Very few albums interweave horns with bluesy, country-infused, gospel-y pop rock better than the Blow Monkeys did on this particular album. They have a lot of great stuff, but this, to me, they didn't do this quite what they do on this album again to this level, and I miss it. So... It was a huge honor to me to be able to talk to Dr. Robert about this album. Uh, If you go back to, I think it was episode 20, Robert and I cover the entire career. Um, He's notoriously kind of prickly sometimes with interviewers, but luckily I made it through and he was kind enough to talk to me a second time. It means the world to me. So if you are unfamiliar with Animal Magic, I hope you hear some things in here that you like and you will give it a shot and don't look at it as an 80s pop album relic from that period. Look at it as a vibrant rock record with excellent musicianship. It's really special, if you ask me. Okay, here's Dr. Robert. All right, well, good. So for starters, I, um, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised that you agreed to do this with me because you seem like somebody who doesn't like to go backwards very often or look into the past. Do I have that right? Um, yeah, you have that right. Um, but you know, I remember talking to you before. I enjoyed it. I don't. I don't. You know, I don't generally talk about the past too much because um you know that kind of takes care of itself but you know yeah. occasionally you got to dip in, dip in there and um i mean you know i still enjoy playing those songs you know they're still part of our life set and so so that you know still part of what we do in the present as well good i'm uh, i'm glad that you rem- i was curious if you would even remember who i was and so i'm really glad that you know whatever we did before was good enough to merit doing this again you mentioned the live yeah. shows. That's one of my biggest questions because, so I've been going over, you know, Blow Monkey's set lists. And the last time I could see one that included a song other than Digging Your Scene is from like April of 2015, where you worked in Wicked Ways. And then the, your live album that came out, I think in 2010, had I Back the Winner in You. It almost seems like the opposite. Like you, you don't pull these songs out very often. And it makes me think, do you even like this album? Are you proud of this album? Yeah, I'm proud of it. I mean, they, they, we do. I do Heaven is a Place quite a lot. Um, and, 
you know, we we we've occasionally chucked in forbidden fruit, but um, no, we haven't. I mean, I, I guess it's because you know I tend to try and. We, we obviously we have to play digging your scene, and I yeah. still enjoy playing it. And then obviously that's that's something that we do. But because we've been sort of concentrating in the last five or six years on a lot of new records and making new albums, we try and fit as much of that in as possible, yeah. as well. So you know you can only play for so long. But I mean, we were, I've been thinking about that. You know, in the in the we've got some gigs coming up, and we'll change it around. And I think that stuff like um, I nearly died laughing and Forbidden Fruit and stuff like that, we might get back into those. You know, and try yeah. and make those feel make those feel good. You know. Okay, I wondered if because you know you guys be ever since you came back in full, with full force and are releasing albums regularly, they don't. They're all great. I love all your albums, but they're a little more. Um, organic, I guess, might be the right word. Or they 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 don't rely on the horns as much or the strings quite as much. They're there, but they're there for like texture. They're not a focus yeah. like these like these first albums. In fact, I mean, only the grocer's she was only the grocer's daughter doesn't that starts to move away into more dance oriented rock. So I wondered if you were yeah. if like right off the bat you were like you know what we're we're done being this horn group. We don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't think about it in those terms. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, um, the, the first album, "Limping for a Generation," I was sort of still. You know, they were some of the first songs I ever wrote. So I was just kind of learning. So that's why they're they're quite idiosyncratic. And by the time we got to doing Animal Magic, you know, I knew that we had a bit of a budget to make the record that I wanted to make, and I and I was still kind of. You know, it was a thrill for me to be able to get strings and backing singers and horn sections and all that. So I just thought, well, bring it on, you know, yeah. at that point. I wanted, I was learning. I'd never been in the studio with all that going on. And I wanted, I wanted the full treatment. You know, I still was listening to a lot of, you know, Forever Changes by Love was a big album for me because of the, the orchestration on it. And, and the way that that worked around what were basically kind of pop songs and soul folk songs, you know. Yeah. So I, that, that 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 mixture was always in my mind. And so at that time um, on Animal Magic, it was before the drum machines came in with us, you know, before before I started getting more into kind of dance things. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't really like a conscious thing, but I can see now looking back, you know, what the process was. Yeah, I've wondered if you just moved on, if you view this as sort of a relic from the past, or if there's some pride related to with some of these songs and the way they turned out. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy them. I, I don't really indulge too much in pride for it because, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily a healthy thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I listen back and I think, oh, I could have sung that better. I was really young when I did that. And, I, and yeah, and so, and that's cool because, you know, um, I appreciate I appreciate the person that was trying to get heard, you yeah, know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. But I'm, I, I can't live there anymore. Yeah, I could. I that does not surprise me at all. Coming from you, I could, that's exactly what I would imagine Dr. Roberts saying. Okay, so let's get into some of the like the producer of this album was primarily you and a guy named Peter Wilson, and a guy yeah. a, a, named Adam Mosley. I don't know that much about Adam. I know Peter had been working with the Jam and Style Council, and I wondered if that's where you became friends with Paul Weller, was from this relationship. I, I met him at that time because we recorded some of it at his studio, but I didn't really become friends with him until a, a, a couple of years later during the sort of Red Wedge time when we toured together. Okay. 
But uh, yeah, Peter, I, you know, I knew I, I'd done some demos with Peter before, and I knew that he was really sort of really good at orchestration, and mm-hmm. and he he just had a kind of sympathetic ear. Adam was Adam was a guy that worked in in the studio. Um, we were demoing in who I got on really well with. He went on to work. He went over to to LA. I think he was at Silver Lake Studios, oh. and he he's, yeah, he he became quite a big deal. But Adam was great, you know, um, at that point because I was just learning. So, yeah. but even then, I wanted to sort of get my hands dirty. I wanted to get into a little bit of production because, um, you know, that's just the way it, way it was for me. Yeah. I I got frustrated. I got frustrated handing it over at the last stage and then wondering why it didn't sound like I wanted it to sound. So mm. there was all those kind of things. But I was learning, really. I was like a magpie. Okay. And uh, they, they were great. And th- those guys were great. And then right at the end stepped in Michael Baker. And that took it on a very different... Because Michael Baker did the remix on Digging Your Scene, which ended up on the album. Oh, okay. Which changed everything. Yes. You know. Yeah, so tell me... I don't know, like, who... Who's who's leading the charge then from a production standpoint? If there's so many people, so many cooks in this kitchen, is it a harmonious relationship or are you sort of in charge and people like Adam and Michael Baker or Peter Wilson, are they doing what you're telling them to do or are they in charge and you're working with them? How's, what's the dynamic? Well, it's a bit of both. I'm, I'm, I'm there, but the, I'm, I'm, I'm letting them do their thing and watching and learning. And then, you know, I don't know enough at this stage to be able to say exactly what it is that... that you know, that's not right or is right. I'm just sort of learning and enjoying the ride a bit. But then along, um, it, it was pretty harmonious. I mean, the guy at the record company, a guy called Corda Marshall, who who is quite he's the boss of BMG now. But he, at that time, when we started, he was a T boy. He kind of took over with us, and he he put me in touch with a lot of these people. And he, he told me about this guy Michael Baker, who was working in Arthur Baker's studio in New York, mm-hmm. and said. You know, go over with the tapes for digging your scene and just get a remix done for a club thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first time I'd went over to New York to do that, and that would have been 85. And um, he took, you know, he, rep- he he just kind of changed everything. He kept my, my guitar, the voice, the strings, and everything, but he kind of replaced everything else. And, um, and I just, I, thought, I knew it was a hit. I thought, wow, this is amazing, yeah. but... You know, but at the same time, the band aren't on it. You know, yeah. so I came back and I came back and I played it to the group and I said, "Do you want the good news or the bad news?" Yeah. You know, the good news is I think we've got a hit record, and the bad news is you're not on it. <laughs> so, because um, you know, it kind of been replaced by Lindrums and you know, yeah. but that was the beginning of a different journey that took us into all sorts of places, yeah. and that came right at the end of, of the recording session. But I knew that I knew the album was good, and I knew it was a step up from limping. You know, I just felt yeah. like I got those kind of solely yeah. courses with backing vocals, and I got a bit of my brass thing in from bands like the Laughing Clans, and a bit of T Rex, and a bit of Soul, and a bit of everything. It was all in there, yeah. really. It really is. So, what were the what was the band's reaction when you said we're going to have a hit, but you're not going to be on it? How did they feel? <laughs> they were fine because it changed oh. our lives. You know, it yeah. changed everything. I mean, it, the 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 album was was them, and we played it live, and everything. It was just that single that. You know, in order to get the sound and, and kind of get on the radio and stuff like that, that's, that that sound just made digging your scenes sound really fresh. Yeah. So, you know, that's just the way that was, and they, they accepted that. Okay. So prior to Michael Baker's work on digging your scenes specifically, it was that song tagged as an obvious 
single or hit song during the production well, process? Uh, yeah, by by the record company, I didn't okay. think it was. I'll be honest, I didn't think it. I, I wasn't sure at all. But we had a we had a version with the band playing on it, and I thought, you know, it's a good album type. Shows you how wrong I was. But <laughs> I, I, and I I had other things in mind. But you know, that's just credit to Corda Master with because he oh. saw that in that tune and and said, look, go over there with the tapes and see what you can do. So um, that's that's what happened. Excellent. And uh, is the song really about the AIDS crisis or someone with AIDS or whatever? That's what everyone says it is. triggered by that, that that statement about AIDS being God's revenge. Somebody had said that. Mm-hmm. Um, Donna Summer, I think it was actually. Who, I think she later retracted it. And because you know, you know, although I'm not gay, I was involved in those gay scenes in the kind of in the club scene where there's the only place you could go at night in, the, in England at the time that was open and hear good music and stuff. So that that scene and that whole vibe was really underground and really important. And also, it was where the first kind of inklings of house music appeared and, and you know they were playing kind of radical stuff so it was a scene that was under siege by the British establishment because they started you know AIDS in particular and all that stuff they started this whole campaign with the tabloids and stuff scare stories so um, <clears throat> yeah that's what it was it was kind of inspired by all that if you okay. Know. okay what a different world we're in now Robert I mean Yes, there are those, you know, rampant conservatives who still believe that kind of stuff. But in general, you know, there's not a lot of people dying from AIDS anymore. Homosexuality has been largely accepted in a lot of ways. It's still so much better than it was 33 years ago or whatever it is. You know, what a different world yeah. we live in now. Better world. In that well, absolutely. Case. On, on that level, you're absolutely right. But then we have, we're living in an age of Trump and Brexit. Oh. So I don't know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be careful because uh, it's better as it pertains to homosexuality. The rest of so many other things are still a mess, especially with with Trump and Brexit. My gosh. So now, when this when the song comes out, you hear this final version, and it, you're hearing it on the radio. We should. I wanted to give a little bit of background information. It did reach number 14 in the states and number 12 in the UK. I probably did, you know, really good in other parts of the world. Um, how did you notice your life changing thanks to a big hit? Other than, you know, now suddenly Oklahoma City wants us to come play a concert for them. But like, you know, did you, are you being recognized on the street? Uh, is your bank account 
getting big? Are you staying in nicer hotels? What are the fruits of your labor? To quote you in another song we're going to talk about. Well, at this stage, I'm still living in a, in a flat above a record shop in Brixton. Mm. But the record company is sending very flash cars around to pick me up. <laughs> so I'm telling them not to do this because you're drawing attention to me, which I don't particularly want. Yeah. But, you know, of course, it, yeah, I mean, okay. um, it, changed, it changed our lives. The first thing that you notice is that you, you go from playing to 200 people to 2,000 overnight. Yeah. And, and you know, um, at that point in the UK, especially Top of the Pops was still a big deal because, you know, this is pre-internet, so everybody watched this television program. So the minute you appeared on that, yeah. 20 million people saw you. So, of course, that changes everything. So, yeah, I, I, I got all those things. And, of course, you know, you get, you know, money starts to come in, things start to change. Yeah. But my, my memory of it was that um, I was still living in that small flat in Brixton and most of the time we were so busy uh, because we'd thrown ourselves into, because it was a hit all around the world, we were going everywhere. You didn't really have time to stop and look and say, well, things have changed, you know, it was just, yeah. it was exciting. I mean, I loved playing the States and, I, and I'm hopefully we're, we're heading out there again soon. And yeah. I loved, you know, I, you know, it was just, it was just an incredible feeling to think that, you know, people knew us in these, you know, from going from nowhere to that yeah. was, it was really quite something i don't i don't think it happens like that anymore i think yeah. we were kind of about last generation that if you had a hit in england and then one in america it was really a worldwide thing yeah yeah i agree i know um yeah. i know you've been married to your wife michelle for a long time was she in the picture during this period yeah i knew her we, she was actually living in a flat above me in brixton <laughs> really huh yeah interesting yeah okay yeah wow i would love to go back and see a tour of that flat you know, this is where this is where my man, Dr. Robert, was when all of this took place. Well, I, was, be a I was sharing landmark. a flat with, yeah, well, I was sharing a flat with, uh, with a guy called Hector, who was a DJ, who is still a good friend and still, and he was, um, he was a bit of a legendary DJ on the Northern Soul Circuit in the 70s, and he moved to London, and he was a, he was a resident DJ at a club in Soho called the Wag Club. He was instrumental in giving me more of a musical education than I otherwise would have had because I shared a flat with him at that point. So I was hearing all sorts of, you know, in particular kind of soul music and black music and new dance music and new rap music and everything that was, everything that was bubbling under in the eighties and coming through. So that was, I was lucky really. I was really yeah. lucky to be in that place at that time. Isn't it those people who broaden our minds musically, whether they be older brothers or roommates or college you know college buddies or whatever those people are so impactful if you're a muso in your life you know they just yeah. you see the world in through in more colors than you did before i love that yeah they change your life just one just putting on one record can lead you really and you're off on an archaeological dig and you're off into somewhere else and it just takes one little spark and i was very lucky to have you know you talk about that kind of fame thing that happened to me at that point. Uh, that I guess what really was lucky for me was that I had really good people around me. I had very good, strong, grounded friends who thought nothing of all that crap. So, um, and, and you know, and I was 25, so I wasn't a kid. So I didn't, it didn't turn my head too much, you know what I mean? Yeah, good, good for you, man. Okay, before we get to the next track, Animal Magic, I wanted to give a little bit of background on the album itself. It was released in April of 1986 
It reached number 35 in the States. I don't know what it did in the rest of the world. I am curious how you feel about the cover. I think you've stated before that at that moment, you looked an awful lot like Morton Harkett from AHA. And uh, you and your, you know, your debonair hair and your white turtleneck uh, could have been, there may have been some confusion about, wait, isn't that the take on me guy? But what, who is Blow Monkeys? Were you feeling any of that or am I, make, am I making that up? No, that was always a joke. I mean, it, it was, it was, um, they, they kind of touched up the photo, you know, changed the color of my eyes, shaved shakes, cheekbones. I thought they, they think, I think they thought that they had the next, you know, George Michael or Morton Hargett on their hands for a while <laughs> until they, until they looked at the lyric sheet, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I definitely think there was a push at that point to sell us and sell me as uh, you know, as, as, as that kind of front man. And, you know, because I was away, because we, we were sort of touring for nine months a year, 86, you know, they were putting out singles and stuff and I wasn't there and uh, approving artwork. And uh, when I got back, I realized that I've got to watch this because they're kind of marketing us. I'm not saying it was, you know, it's deliberate to do that. But there was a bit of that in there, you yeah. know what I mean? And I, and I probably went along with it as a laugh, not realizing that in, in actual fact that can be quite damaging because it's all about perception and, and, sure. and to some degree I've had to kind of, I've had to um, live down that sleeve for the last 30 years. <laughs> really? How because, so? You know, you know, to a certain point, because that's not, you know, that's that's a, an airbrushed, um, you uh -huh. know, idealized picture. Yeah. Did the, did the rest of the band say anything when they saw this? Like, where are we? I mean, they're all in the back. <laughs> they're on the back, but they're not on the front. <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't. No, I mean, I, I think that was, you know, it's, that's just the way the band has always been, and I think the record company saw it as an easier way to to sell the band and to and to have a, a you know a kind of striking image on the front that became easily recognisable, and that's kind of what we were at that time. I mean, yeah, I remember the record company guy saying to me, "Oh, you are just like T Rex. It's all about you." And I was thinking, well, it's not really the same as that because we we've been together since day one, and. Although, yeah, I'm the songwriter, main man, and all that, the front man. You know, we still are. Here we are all these years later mm -hmm. with the same people. Yeah. So it's much more than that. It's a, there's a real bond yeah. Good. Um, in the group. That's, okay. that's, um, and, and so and a strong enough bond to survive a few dodgy record covers. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Um, my personal hi history with this album is that a friend of mine, uh, Brandon Nordgren had the record and I dubbed it off him. If you remember back in the day, you would, you know, record someone's tapes or records onto a blank cassette. And uh, I had that for a while. And I remember specifically Digging Your Scene was like my favorite song at the time. And I remember being a little disappointed because the album was had more guitars than I thought it would. I was expecting everything to sound like digging your scene with lots of lush horns and everything. And so I remember being yeah. like, who are these guys? This isn't what I had in mind. And what's interesting about that is that as the years have gone on, I went through stages in my fandom of this album where it went from something I was disappointed in to something I liked to something I liked a lot, but felt it was more of like a guilty pleasure because it might fall under sophisticop and you're so pretty on the cover and is it real rock and roll and all this kind of stuff. 
to where I am now, where every time I listen to it, I am more blown away by the actual musicianship that's going on and that merge of of organic guitar work that is largely you, I believe, with the horns, with the strings, with this great percussion. And now I see it as a very excellent rock album more than I do this like lush sophisticated album. And it doesn't, it should be up there with any other album of its ilk that is displaying excellent musicianship over, you know, pop, not that pop music is shallow, but you know what I mean? There's depth there that you don't, you maybe are disregarding because of its, I don't know, because of the horns or whatever. So I want you to know my personal, I've tr- I've gone over the years, I have progressed in my love for this album. Every time I hear it, it, I feel deeper and deeper that it's one of my very favorites of all time. Top 10, top five, something like that. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. And, you know, you all you do at the time is your best and, and uh, you're unaware of, of how it affects people. I mean, I knew that uh, it was a step up and I was, you know, at the time, I was excited by what, what I was hearing coming back, but um, and, and there was that disconnect between digging your scene and the rest of the album because of, of what I just told you about Michael yeah. Baker getting involved and the whole change in sound. But the real sound of the band at that time is that album, and that's the way that we were playing live. And you know, it, it was just that uh, the interplay between the brass and the guitar and stuff was was just our particular nuanced sound, and even the way the bass player Mick plays, you know, is slightly yeah. odd. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you know, it, it's uh, it just kind of gelled together. Good, good. I haven't, to be honest with you, I haven't sat down and listened to it probably for about thirty years. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> now you may be, you may be curious again. Well, I don't. Yeah, I'm always curious too when I talk to people like you who, who I love so deeply. But we we focus on a moment. If like, I don't want someone to... Re- I would hate for a girlfriend I had 30 years ago to read a love note or something like that. I would feel so stupid, you know? So I can imagine how you must feel, but it is... Hopefully you know that these this work you did 30-something years ago is impacting people, and it made a huge impact on me. So, anyway. Yeah, well, that's good. Cool. Good. Uh, okay, track two, Animal Magic. It's the title track. What does Animal Magic mean? What is that? And why is it, why are you in chains? You know, it's like asking somebody to disseminate a love letter from 30 years ago. 
is quite difficult. Mm. I mean, I think what specifically what that you know what I'm saying to you is I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what it it would be it would be to do with with emotions being stronger than intellect. Mm. In other words, the, you know, especially at that age, that you just get carried away on waves of. You know, you think this person that you meet is the one that you're going to stay with forever, and you think that and next week that changes, yeah. and it's very confusing, and your and your and your hormones all over the shop, and everything's confusing, and at the same time you want to have a career in music and blah blah blah. And so and, and that's kind of where that was at. I think I was all over the shop. The actual song itself has got one. I always wanted to do one of those kind of one of those songs where the chorus was half time to the verse. Mm-hmm. Again, I think I'm probably referencing something like. Did a bug love or something like that by T-Rex, which is which does that trick. Um, so you know, specifically about the, the lyrics, I can't really tell you too much. Okay. But I mean, it, that's what it would be about. Yeah. Okay, I'm not that big of a lyric guy. I read through them to talk to you, just because I didn't want to be blindsided by anything. But we don't have to get too deep in some of these lyrics because I'm not very smart and I don't always know what people are saying, and so I pay more attention to the feel. Um, Thank God for that. <laughs> some of, because some of the lyrics, to be honest with you, are about they're just they're, I mean they're, they're just to, you're just putting in the words sometimes to create to cast a spell mm-hmm. to make to make the whole thing work. I mean I've never been like a a storyteller. You know mm-hmm. I, I admire those people. I, I like the you know Leonard Cohen, Nick Cave. You know Bob Dylan. People that can write reams and reams of verses and, and tell a story. Mine is kind of more about putting the right words in the right order in order mm-hmm. to make something work. And other times, you know, I have got a specific kind of message that I might want to put over. So, so that, in other words, it's not always easy to disseminate the lyrics and say, well, this is what they mean. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't mean that it's less important, by the way, in my, in my view. Sure. You know, I mean, I go back to kind of Mark Bolan, nonsensical lyrics mm-hmm. largely, but they were magical. They could, you know, they, yeah. they, they cast a spell. Yeah. I mean, what the hell does male guru mean? But it, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> totally agree. All right, so there it is doesn't... no one person that you are writing this love song to. There, I mean, are you, do you, when you write not a line that like that? Okay. Not, okay. Not, not, not that I would tell you that. No, not at this point. But there probably was. <laughs> okay, good. Got it. Okay, well, that's that alone is good to know. You're right. I love the chorus. There's this chorus and uh, I Nearly Died Laughing have these big sort of, they get b- more bombastic. There's like a there's like a slight pregnant pause that amps up the anticipation. Are these tricks that you incorporated? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Is that a Peter Wilson thing? No, that's just me. That's just me. That's just me. Um, that's just in the writing. I mean, Peter Wilson. None of the guys got involved in any of the writing. They never. They never suggested. Oh, listen. You want to drop a verse. You want to drop a chorus. You need a bridge. I never got any of that stuff. Um, I always came pretty fully formed um, okay. in terms of the songwriting and the feel. Okay. I just didn't know how to record. I didn't know how to embellish and put strings on, and how to engineer, how to EQ, how to get the right. If I had done, I w- it would have sounded different, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which maybe is a good thing. I, I didn't know, but no, I, I kind of, I, I went with. I was pretty strong on strong song structure. Uh, you know, that was always inherent. Okay. Okay. Good. Just curious. Now, I one wonderful theme throughout your whole album is that there are always really wonderful black ladies singing back up and it's always my opinion that 
nothing makes a rock song better than when some black ladies sing some gospely backup to it. You know what I mean? I love that. Yeah. How did you get these ladies? And I should I should say for the most part, it is Sylvia Mason James, Mary Cassidy, and Bernita Turner. I think those three names show yeah. up on a lot of these songs. Who are they? How did you get them? Um, Sylvia Mason was really the leader of all of them. She was she she'd been singing on the circuit for a long time, made her own records. When I, again, you know, when I talked to, I think it was through um, Peter Wilson, and I said, you know, we really need some singers on these, and he got these 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 three down. Mary Casty is an Irish singer. She's white, but she's got an amazing mm. song voice. And Benita came as a friend of Sylvia's. And all three of them came on the road with us. Um, uh. In fact, Sylvia Mason and Benita came to the States with us. Mm. So um, they became kind of, yeah, long-term, you know, for the next few years, they were part of the furniture with us. That's great. Very cool. They, they yeah. are one of the extra special ingredients to this whole album that makes that elevates it to what it is. Um, yeah. Okay. I agree. Number three, Wicked Ways starts out with a very kind of groovy countryish guitar lick. I think it was the follow-up single to Digging Your Scene. It did pretty well in the UK. I only ever remember seeing the video once, and it wasn't even on MTV. It was on like one of those, um, you know, other video programs that would happen late at night on the weekends and stuff like that. Yeah. Were there big expectations when this song came out? That was your label coming to you like? We're going to continue to ride the wave of digging your scene with wicked, get, wicked ways, or did they dump on it? What, what happened? Why did it not, you know, continue? Something kind of, you know, Memphis, something laid back, 
with the backing vocals and all that, and it had all those elements, and it did quite well in, in the UK um, and in Europe, and it became a good, you know, live tune. But it was never going to do what Digging did. Um, so I, I think I think that um, there was no expectation really for it to do as well. But I kind of knew at that time I had already written doesn't have to be this way mm. on tour in America and I knew that we had something that would probably be strong down the line okay. so because yeah there was pressure you know you need something to, to follow this up you know the album didn't really have because the, the mix of digging was the last thing we did the album didn't really have that okay um, is the song again not to get too deep into the lyrics but you refer to staying together for the sake of the children does this song have something to do with divorce yeah, I, would, I got divorced around that time, but it was oh. also, I mean, the title, the title was um, was taken from a, I think it was Errol Flynn's biography. Oh, really? <laughs> Which I thought that would do. Yeah, I think it's called My Wicked Wicked Ways or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of unnecessary guilt on this record. You know, I noticed that were in the lyrics when I, when, I, when I had a little glance at them, you know. Uh -huh. um, I, I guess, I don't know, that was just something that sort of seeped in at that time. Huh. And for what, I don't know. It's probably uh, probably the, the Protestant upbringing in the UK, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I've, I've, thankfully, I've got rid of that. Good. I wondered, in keeping with the theme of, with the AIDS idea and your sort of androgyny at the time, if this was another slam against we need to cure you of your wicked ways, which might have been homosexuality at the time. So I wondered if it was another kind of, um, I don't know, another injection that direction, but it doesn't sound like, the, no, like it no, was. No, not, not specifically, no, no, it wasn't. But I was aware that that's what people might think, and I was uh -huh. happy for them to think that. Okay, okay, good. Who's Yogi? Backing vocals by Yogi. I don't know who that is. She's, she, I think she sang on... on um, Digging, I think. Oh, really? She, I think so. She, 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 because when we went and did the new version of Digging, you'll see, they added other vocalists mm. in New York. Okay. So she was, a, she was a real deal. She came in and blew the place apart, and she nice. was brilliant. Um, and that was my first experience of working with some New York session musicians, and nice. that was a whole different ball game because oh, cool. that was like they were on show. You know, they yeah. came in very full on. That's great. That must have been yeah, which I loved. You know, I loved that. I mean, I, you know, in England, people sit in the room and nobody says what they're really thinking. Yeah. So it was nice to go to New York, and it was refreshing to 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 come across such kind of brazen, sort of outward thinking people. Yeah, I can imagine, especially for you guys being yeah. this young up and coming band who's used to only working in the UK, and you come to New York, and there's these pros that are coming and laying their talent on your music. That's got to kind of be mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they were digging it. They they liked what we were doing, and you know, they, uh, and you know, we gave as good as we got. I mean, I was cocky, but I was I was also very keen. I was a magpie. I was really very yeah. keen to learn. I was really keen to learn. You know. Good, good. Okay, all right. Track four, "Sweet Murder." This is probably my favorite song on the album. It's just epic. Goes on over six minutes. In the first like thirty seconds or so, I was breaking this down. First, it starts out with some strange noise, which must be Ika Mouse, because everything I, I I've heard that name, and I know it has something to do with reggae. He has something to do with reggae, but I didn't know that much about him. So I'm guessing this is Ika Mouse making these strange noises that go into yeah. these like siren-sounding horns that go into sort of a country acoustic guitar, and then a bluesy electric guitar, and then these giant big drum beats. And then there's congas. 
and swanky horns, and this is all within like the first 30, 45 seconds, right? That's right. Did you set out to make this like some epic, we're going to throw everything in here? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it was based, it was a groove song, you know. I knew that we could have fun with it, put it that way. So, um, so we did, we checked the kitchen sink at it. Ecomass was a, well, he's still around. He was a, he was big in London at that time. He was a, a Jamaican toaster, they call him now. But he was a, he was a piece of work. He was six foot seven, sort of Jamaican guy. I couldn't I could never understand a word he said. I just used to say, "Yes, Mr. Mass, whatever you want." He was scary. Um, and uh, and he, he had a voice like a human synthesizer. You know, he just did this thing and middling, 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 all that stuff. Right. And uh, we did a couple of gigs with him as well. Um, yeah, amazing character. He used to dress up as a musketeer or masketeer, as he called it. Yeah. doing that tune actually i mean i don't i'm not i don't think it's one of my greatest songs but but it's a good it's a good record and it's a good production on that one yeah yeah the guitar again there's eventually the guitar strumming sounds a little bit like something nile rogers would have done but then buried under that is some psychedelic guitar work is all of that you like the solo there's a there's an epic solo in there is that you as well yeah that's me wow Wow, good for you, man. Yeah. It's so good. And I was I was looking, uh, the, the percussion is done by a guy named Louis Jardim, who yeah. um, I, I didn't know that name off. I, it sounded vaguely familiar, but I wasn't sure. And I looked him up, and he's done all this work with Trevor Horn. He's played on a million albums that I know and love. How did you get hooked up with him? He, uh, he was... He was the guy in London at the time. He, like you said, he played with Trevor Horn. He was a friend of Peter Wilson's, and uh, he came in. Brazilian guy came in, big cigar. He was he was another one. He came in and it was a whole show. He, he set up. He had he had a roadie who set up his whole percussion stuff in the room in the main room, and uh, he just said, "Just play me the track, you know, over the headphones, and I'll just play along." He didn't even want to hear the track before. He just, uh, he just basically did it. He wanted to react to it first take, and we had to get what he did, because that's the sort of guy he was. He was that good, you know. Yeah. So um, again, you know, it was 
it was a performance. Yeah. You know, you got him first or second take, and that was it because he didn't want to stay. He had another. He probably had another session to go to. Yeah. But but it, you know, I just I I liked it. I liked I liked the the attitude that he brought to it, and you can kind of hear that. And it's not like a session musician coming in to play safe. He's coming to do a performance, and then he's off. Yeah. Yeah, and he shows up on here a few more times. In fact, the next song, "Airplane City Love Love Song," he's on there as well. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I gotta, I gotta just say, and again, I don't know if these are your decisions or someone else's, but these these little accents of color, whether it be the ladies singing backup or these different version, these different guitar versions that are happening in the same song, or in your case, the percussion with these congas and timbales or whatever, that's what makes this album so special. Are these little? You could have stripped all that away and just had a perfectly serviceable album, but instead you add all these little bits of color, and that's what gives it this depth. And I don't know if you were conscious of that as you were going along, or you say you haven't listened to it, so maybe you don't even think it's that deep. But I do. I think that's what makes it special. You know? Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. There was a lot of attention to detail, and and Pete Wilson has to take some of the credit for that yeah. because he. You know, I would say, well, you know, I was like, I was, you know, I was a kid in the sweet, sweet shop. I was like, we've got a budget. What, what do you think? Should we put some vibes on this or should we get a conga player in or should we do this or that? Or how many brass sections can we get, you know? And uh, he, he he sort of tamed it, but he kept, he, he, he brought them in and and um, it, it just worked because something like Aeroplane City Love Song has got the chord structure and the groove to give it that kind of space where you can have a bit of fun, you can stretch out. And there were still sort of slightly odd Latin-flavored horn lines that were in my head that, you know, I would, I would sing him the horn line and then he would sort of play it on piano and write it out. You know, that's how it kind of worked a lot of the time. Okay. Yeah, I think Aeroplane uh, yeah. might be my second favorite song on the album. It, it changes a lot. What, where is Aeroplane City? Where, what is that? Well, that's just, the, that's just the impressionistic kind of response to suddenly you know, being in a band and flying around the world doing TV shows and things like that. Even before Digging was a hit, we'd started to do that. And I thought, well, I didn't, you know, I, this was all new to me. I didn't know any of this kind of stuff existed. And, and so you meet someone somewhere and one minute you're in Rome or in Paris. And, you know, I spent all my life just wanting to get there and suddenly we're doing this. And it's 
slightly disorientating, but at the same time, it's it's you know it's exhilarating. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it's one of those, I guess. It's one of those impressionistic kind of. I mean, it was actually written on one of those short hall flights, you know, probably one of, in a little notebook. The title went down, the, the song would have come the next day. That's kind of just the way it was for me at that time. Because I couldn't, the flat that I was in in Brixton was very, I was above a record shop. So, uh, and I didn't have much peace, you know, in that particular flat. So I was writing wherever I could, you know. I was writing in studios or, on, you know, in taxis or on planes, you know, just doing that. Yeah. Um, so are you the person who thinks you're God? In the in the lyrics, or are you referring to somebody else? No, I don't, I don't think I'm referring to. I think it's the idea that of, of um, it's it's partly about growing up and and uh, and moving on away from thinking that superheroes really exist or that anybody anybody is anybody who puts themselves in that you know rock stars or um, you know anybody that puts themselves in this kind of you know, we're all we're, we're all crumb, we're all human. We're all the same, and it's just a realization, I guess, for me at that age that the, 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 these kind of false idols, are, you know, will crumble. Okay. Something to do with that. It's something to do with that idea. Okay. So you weren't referring to one person person in particular who thought they were God. You were just talking about superheroes in general, so to speak. I'm talking about yeah. I'm talking about the the idea that you put anybody up on a pedestal and think that they are some sort of yeah. Yeah, which is probably what I did as a youngster. There would have been people that I really loved as musicians that I would have thought they live, they're, they're breathing rarefied air. Yeah. You know, they're different. David Bowie, someone like that. You think, right. how, do you, how do you get to be David Bowie? Yeah. And then you realize, you know, David Bowie's just a mensch. He's just yeah. a good and nice guy, but he works hard, he's intelligent, and he's brave, but he's no more special yeah. than the guy that's working in the in the chemist down the road or whatever yeah, you know right. it's part of growing up i guess so yeah. you stop you stop idolizing people okay yeah. yeah okay i was curious okay so track six if you i didn't know this until recently if you bought the cassette you got track six was a song called walking the blue beat which is a song that i've heard because i have the deluxe version of this album but i never realized that that was at any point considered for the album or anything like that why we don't have to get too deep into it because i didn't want to get into like the expanded versions of all this but why does a song like that only show up on a cassette who makes that decision or is it to encourage people to buy a cassette and like discipline the ones who don't why do you do that <laughs> well this is not my decision but that, that that tune was recorded after the album and that was done with Adam Mosley, I believe. And I think it, so it, it wasn't really recorded in the same session. It would have been a month or two afterwards. And at that time, there was always the idea, the imperative was to give the Japanese a bonus track because Japan was a massive market at the time for all the pop acts, especially us. And you would have to give them something that wasn't available. I mean, this wasn't my decision. This was record company shenanigans, you know. Um, but we always had plenty of tracks to do stuff like that with. Yeah. There was always B-sides and new things hanging about, you know. That that tune, um, yeah, that, that kind of popped up as a bonus track in Japan first, I think. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious what goes into making those kinds of decisions. Um, yeah. Okay, the next first track on the next side, I believe, if I remember this correctly, would have been I Nearly Died Laughing. What can you tell me about I Nearly Died Laughing? That's another one that I was talking about earlier that has this really dynamic 
chorus, you know, where things co there's like a pregnant pause before that gets really big. You mentioned shit. You said shit in there, which is kind of a ballsy move, maybe. I don't know if you saw it that way, or maybe it was no big deal. I don't know. Tell me about it. I think this this came about, I think, as a, as a result of it, because I had lived in Australia for a few years in my teens, and I think I'd gone back to Australia one Christmas, and I, I think it was a reaction to seeing some not colleagues, but some acquaintances that I'd had before had fallen into kind of heavy addiction. Mm. And so there was something, and it wasn't, it was something in me that was, was saying, I feel, you know, I'm not, that's, you know, I'm not going there, that, that's nothing to do with me. And so it was a pretty nasty way of reacting to that. I think that's where it first came from, if I'm really honest with you. Mm. It was something to do with, with um, like I'm, you know, I'm moving on, I'm out of this, particular scene I'm out of this particular kind of way of life not that I ever was but that, that I wasn't going to go there so it was it was it was one of those kind of things and musically it was again it was a, it was one of, you know I always loved those you know I'm going back to to kind of the soul roots really of, 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 like, of that slowing down the verse and then you know pregnant pause and then hitting with a big chorus right and uh, I just wanted to see whether I could do that, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's a mixture of, you know, it's a mixture of kind of that lyrically and, and musically, which went into quite a few songs on this record. Okay. So uh, drugs were not, I mean, you're, you're talking about it as an observer. Were drugs a, a part of your life in any kind of demonstrable way? Not really. I never okay. was. Um, I, I kind of dabbled, but I never... I never got, um, I never stayed there. I always, I always had too much to do, yeah. <laughs> you know, probably. I was always having to get up early in the morning and I always had, I took the responsibility of writing really seriously so that I could just write and write and get better. I just wanted to, I still feel like that now. Mm -hmm. um, the, the idea is to, is to be excited about what you might be able to achieve. And, the, and for me, that, the, that didn't come around waiting for inspiration to, 
to, to hear it. Sometimes it was just a, a question of working. Yeah. So um, I, I, I just couldn't waste that amount of time, and I, I, I didn't have that much to run from either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, okay. I, it wasn't it wasn't for me. Okay. Um, I'm not saying that I haven't had periods in my life where I've probably drunk too much and I, you know, whatever. I've yeah. had those periods for sure. Yeah. But in in general, I'm not an addictive personality. Okay. Are you still a smoker? No. Okay. I asked because one of the pictures on the inside is you holding your cigarette, and I was curious if you still smoked or. I'm always curious when rock stars no. smoke. Like, do they think that that helps, or is it does it hurt, or does it matter one way or the other? I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm curious about them and their voice. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, I think it's it, it's uh, you, you know you see you see pictures of people smoking, and then you think, yeah, that looks cool. <laughs> I mean, David Bowie was a great David Bowie was a great smoker. Yeah, he was. And he, I think he, even on the even on the cover of young, of you know Young Americans and stuff. Yeah. So probably something in there subconsciously. But I was never much of a you know I, I babbled in. I was I, I was a serious smoker. Okay. Just curious. Uh, okay, track uh, seven, Don't Be Scared of Me. Uh, this one, to me, feels a little slick. still a fun song upbeat and everything like that but um it feels a little poppy i guess to me i don't know this was yeah. a single it was released i think after wicked ways and i think it reached the upper like 77 in the uk or something like that I yeah don't think it ever made a dent in the states or anything yeah um do you have any feelings about that one was it meant to be were you when you wrote it were you thinking this is going to make a great pop single no, I, I, what happened with that is that I think it got hijacked. Because when I first wrote it, there's a demo, there's a demo somewhere that I wrote it. It had a far more kind of um, Curtis Mayfield during the Impressions era sort of feel to it, and it was slower and it was more soulful. And I think somewhere along the line, we tried to turn it into a pop song, and it never really worked for me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I would agree with you on that one. <laughs> Yeah, so you know that's this. Yeah, you know. Okay, so there's a lot. Of, you can't you can't win them all, but it was one of those. That it it didn't really work with, with what we tried to do. And, I'll, and uh, actually, I think we did it live once um, when we did Animal Magic, the whole album, a few years ago. Mm. Um, and uh, and we reverted to the original tempo and feel of it, oh. and it was much better. Okay. Yeah. I- yeah. Like I've said, the magic of the album is the is the mix, 
this equal mix of the pop with the organic instrumentation and the fact that it isn't overly slick or the slick parts are fun and they're nice accents whereas this one I still like this song a lot but it seems the most slick of the other ones since digging your scene you know and I just wondered if it, yeah, yeah. Um, now you do mention in there that you're the doctor in the middle of the night uh, was that I, you go by Dr. Robert was that a sort of an inside joke or was that just a tossed off line there's no meaning there um, both. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just wondered if you were like, yeah, I'm such the lover man that uh, I'm going to be your doctor in the middle of the night, you know, and I'm going to refer to yeah, you by probably my... was. Okay. It was tongue in cheek, but it was probably, you know, didn't always come across that way. I don't know. Okay. Um, I can't remember. <laughs> okay. That's okay. Just curious. Now, uh, Burn the Rich this is another one of my favorites. I love Burn the Rich. It's got this great barroom bluesy country cowboy bar kind of sound to it i think um yeah. piano on there i think was played by peter wilson the producer i know that you're a big anti-thatcher person was this song have, does this song have anything to do with your feelings about margaret thatcher slogan that was painted on the on all the tube stations in London at that time by the anarchists. Where I lived in Brixton, it was it was painted big on on a on a Barclays bank opposite where we lived. So it, it was that's why I got the title from because it, it was it, you know it wasn't specific. It was about you know it was emblematic of the great divide that was going on in British society at the time, and it was a slogan that was used by the anarchists. So. I just thought I'd have fun with that because it was, you know, obviously I was on that side. I'm not saying that I was literally um, saying that's burn the rich, but what I'm saying is that there was a, it was a very divisive time in the UK at that time. I, I wanted to, to to be part of that. I didn't want to just be, um, you know, a pop star. I wanted to to, to have my say and and be and be part of what I thought was the solution and be on the right side of things. So that was the big, you know, we, that was the beginning. And, they, you know, people were confused by that because they thought that we were, you know, pretty boy pop group. Right, right. So there were, you know, and there were definitely, there were, I, had to, I had to really make, you know, make it clear that there wasn't just that. But, you know, that, that, I, I really like that song as well. Um, I really like the groove on it. And there's, a, there's some slide guitar on it that a guy, um, I was, 
I was trying to get the slide guitar myself, and at that point, I, I, I couldn't do it. So the, the engineer in the studio said, uh, oh, my dad plays slide guitar. And I said, oh, great, bring him in. So and that's dad, who Joe Brown is, is the engineer's yeah, dad? Joe, yeah, Joe Brown is engineer's dad. And Joe Brown in in England is quite a famous guy. Really? He's a, he, yeah, he's, he's, um, he started out as... Uh, in the very early 60s, 61, 62, around the same time as someone like Cliff Richard or Marty Wilde would have started. Uh -huh. and, uh, but the only difference was that Joe Brown was a really great guitarist even then. Hmm. And he was the guy that when people like Gene Vincent, uh -huh. um, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, when they toured the UK, he would play for them really because he was the only guy that he's he's the guy that really knew how to do that shit yeah. so apart from the fact that he was a bit of a household name he was also a fantastic guitarist so for me it was such an amazing thrill for this guy to turn up unbeknown to me in the morning and plug in and play on that tune that's incredible oh yes yeah oh that's great that's just the kind of color yeah. i like wow amazing okay yeah look him up i will I've heard yeah. the name, but I wasn't sure where I... And it's kind of a common name, so I wasn't sure if I knew that much about him or not. That is great. I will look him up. He was a, he's, yeah, he had a band called Joe Byrne and the Brothers, but he was, a, you know, he was, a, he was George, George Harrison's best friend. I mean, they were, they, they were like the two, you know, mm -hmm. ukulele brothers, but he's, a, he's still alive and he's still playing, and he's a, he's a fantastic character. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll look him up. Uh, okay, yeah. back to Winter and You. This is where things slow way down. Uh, it sounds like a barbershop kind of, you know, doo-wop chorus. Is that when you... And I think yeah. those, that's being sung by the Demon bar Barbers. I don't know who the Demon yeah. Barbers are. Was this how you envisioned this song when you wrote it, as sounding sort of barbershop-y? Two to one, you don't love me. Three to one, you don't care. But I worship you, baby. And I love the way you stand. And when you get down to basics, baby, ain't a man alive can take that much pain. I backed a winner in you, baby. It was a period where I was, you know, it would be, a, it would be lyrically, it would be a sort of a mantra to self, if you like, about positivism, you know, about, because I think at that time I was kind of alone, I was breaking up with, with in a relationship in between things, and I was singing something that was, uh, you know, self-fulfilling, I was trying to sort of, you know, pick myself up, I think, at the time, and musically, I, I wanted to do so, I always had a soft spot for that kind of, um, you know those kind of American cowboy singing bands that Gene Autry used to be, yeah, you know, like sure. the Sons of Pioneers and all that lot? Yeah. 
cool, cool water. And even even that kind of like low on hardy stuff, you know, the the, the lonesome pine, trail of oh. the lonesome pine. Okay. And all that kind of stuff, which would use barbershop harmonies. And, you know, so, but something inside of me as a kid, that that's connected with. Mm. So there, that, that just came out, you know, that just... And, and so I said to Pete Wilson, you know, we need to have a short quartet on this. And he said, I just know, I know just the people. And so they came in and did it. And, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite songs on it, actually. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a feeling you might feel that way since it still shows up once in a while in your live shows and it was on that live album. Um, why why is this the song that you still go back to? Is it because it's different? Does is it? Do you have this like really beautiful nostalgia for the old singing cowboys? Why this one in particular? Uh, because I don't know. It was a B-side digging your scene, so a lot of people who didn't even buy the album knew the song. Ah, okay. One of the reasons we did it live. It was always good live because it was a it was a dramatic break between other numbers mm -hmm. he would just because it was so different mm -hmm. i would just play it and there would just be one guy playing a conga or something behind me or whatever it was so it just it was just it just felt like a, a refreshing sort of you know break between courses if you like you know mm -hmm. so um i don't know and, and I, I guess the other thing is that if, if there's something in the lyric which i feel that i can still connect to mm -hmm. then it's doing the right thing you know and then i can do it on stage I couldn't sing Don't Be Scared of Me with any conviction at all because I don't feel mm. connected to whatever it was about in the first place anymore. Awesome. But that song I probably could find within within the lyric, I could find that place again. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of important when you're doing live performance. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The, at the beginning, the the singing is, in, is backwards. And uh, it yeah. does that for a little bit, and then it kind of morphs into the actual song. And I'm always curious with the little touches like that. Who thinks of stuff like that? Who's sitting there at the table, at the you know the control desk, thinking, you know what this song really needs? We need to play this part backwards. That's going to sound really cool. Who makes those decisions? Is it you? Mostly me. Yeah. Um, but it would be in that case, it might be Pete Wilson. I don't remember. Okay. But it, often it would be me. Yeah. I mean, I would just try it, and yeah. he would say, "No, it's not." You know. And in those days, it would be it's all tapes, it's all edits and razor blades and and taping bits up together again. You know, it's it's yeah. old school. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, okay. I'm I'm yeah. asking him, well, what's possible? What can we do here? So yeah, I, I can't remember exactly whose idea that was, mm. but. I'll, probably was mine <laughs> okay okay good claim it yeah. take it yeah you deserve I'll it i'll have it okay uh now forbidden fruit uh this is like the last kind of epic jam on the album and uh this song if i remember right uh was a single about a year before digging your scene why why was that yeah. did you have this done a lot long time in advance yeah, I think, I think, yeah this was probably the first thing we recorded after limping
the record company were just keen for singles, they wanted to put it out. And I think, it, although it wasn't a hit, it got it, it definitely got further than anything we'd done before, and it got noticed, and for some people really liked it, you know. So it was, um, you know, it was kind of that, I think musically it was it was influenced probably by, you know, I really loved those, those bands that came out on postcard records in Scotland. The very early sort of orange juice, and I don't know if you know that label postcard, but that was that was a, a label that was launched in Scotland in the very early 80s, okay. sort of post punk. And they were all, they were they were really into the birds, the Velvet Underground, you know that kind of jangly sort of guitar sound. That's probably kind of where that came from. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how did you get Mickey Finn from T Rex, your favorite band, to come do? bongos on this song well i knew i knew that he was working in an antiques market in chelsea really mickey finn yeah, of t-rex was, is working in an antique market yeah he was oh. down on his uppers i mean mickey didn't make a lot of money out of t-rex and he yeah. wasn't that well either you know he had been you know he put it this way he enjoyed himself a little bit too much i think down the years yeah. but he was a lovely lovely guy and it was it was a pleasure to meet and talk to him and have a drink with him and chat about stuff and and it, and just he did a couple of gigs with us a lovely guy lovely fella and um, mm. you know it was, a, it was obviously for me it was a massive thrill and yeah. it just so happened at the time that we were we recorded that song in um, Tony Visconti's studio which was called Good Earth in uh -huh. Soho so Tony Visconti hooked up with Mickey as well, which is the first time oh, I think they'd seen each other for, for you know, 15 yeah. years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. So it was great. And Mickey was just, you know, he, he didn't, he, his playing wasn't great, but we managed to get get him on there. And, um, you know, I mean, it's just, I, mean, I, I just was thrilled to be able to offer him the sure. chance to come in the studio and for him to sort of get back into it a bit. Yeah, yeah. And when he was done, he went right back to work at the antique market. <laughs> I think he did. Although I think he did, he did later on go out and do a bit more music. Yeah, but I think okay. he kind of got his taste buds wetted again. You know. Good. Isn't it crazy? I mean, don't you feel like sometimes your your favorite rock stars deserve to like live in a palace somewhere on like the not the dole, but like the government should just take care of these people forever because they mean so much to you. But they're in reality, they have the same challenges as the rest of us. You know what I mean? Yeah, it exactly. Well, that's what, I'm talking, that's what I was talking to you about earlier with the, you know, realizing that there, 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 are, no, there are no idols. There's no yeah. ideal. I know this because I've met them all. And, I've, yeah. you know, so it's, there's, you, you're either an, a good, person and a kind person or you're not and really in the end that's what matters more than all of it yeah yeah i agree um who, you know, now go, not to go back not to dwell too heavily on the lyrics again but it kicks off i have never seen a freak as wonderful as you who who's the freak you're talking about and who is who's blown themselves away over this person <laughs> <laughs> oh god well, no. I can't give you names. I'm not going to give you names and addresses, but they are based on real events. Put it oh, that way. Really? Just okay. people that just people that I knew. Okay. You know, I mean, okay. that's, that's kind of what I always did. I always wrote about what was happening to me, pretty much at the time. Like I said to you, I'm not a storyteller, yeah. but you know, um, okay. I had some colourful and interesting experiences and friends, and most of those are based on around kind of 
things that did happen. I bet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they're forbidden fruit because they're probably crazy and maybe best left alone, I'm guessing. Yeah, because they always appeal to the wrong side of your nature. And, yeah. and you know, um, you know, but I mean, God, you know, we've got to live a bit. We, we can't, we, you know, we have to make mistakes and we have to go into to dark areas to, to, to be alive, you know, yeah. to, to understand, to understand what it's like. Sure. The key is, the key is to move on from that yeah. without, without recriminations or anger or bitterness and see it for what it is and then carry on. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, without getting too deep about it. So sometimes you, you, you have to go into some sort of dark places, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, even if you're, even if you're in a pop band and you look like the singer out of Aha. Yeah. <laughs> last time we talked you told me and i'm sure it was bs because i know you like to have fun with people like me who are interviewing you that the record label was trying to encourage you to become the next barry manilow and that you had you were giving it some thought you had some regrets that maybe you should have been the next barry manilow i don't know if that's true or if that was just one of the stories in your you know quiver of stories that you like to throw out at journalists to text the, test them but i've never forgotten that no, that's true. I mean, I went for a meeting once with Clive Davis, who's, you know, the, the famous Clive Davis uh-huh. from Arista, who, you know, the guy that signed Springsteen and Sly Stone and, uh, you know, um, Whitney Houston, blah, blah, blah. And he told me that, hey, guy, you got, you know, you got a, you got a good voice, but, you know, you need to, and he put, I mean, he put some Barry Manilow demos on for me in the, in the office to illustrate to me the art of contextual songwriting and structural songwriting. Hmm. So I thought uh, nobody's going to believe this, but this is what he did, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, you know, I probably missed the trick. He was probably right. Who knows? You could have been the next Barry Manilow, you know, that corner. Yeah. Yeah. The world yeah. is uh, a sadder place because of it. Okay. I missed the trick there. You did. You did. Um, okay, good. Well, and your guitar work in Forbidden Fruit is amazing. Um, it just gets better as the song gets going. I love it. Uh, that's another yeah. one of the highlights. And then last track, Heaven is a Place. Again, we go very soft, cl- kind of close it out on a on a softer, slower moment. Um, it starts out with some almost Kenny G sounding horns. I don't mean to I don't mean that disparagingly, but it does sound sort of like it's very different. It's not the like rowdy, raspier horn work that's in all the rest of the songs. This feels very yeah. very different. Oh Lord, is this what it's come to? Well, I was feeling pretty positive. Is that a crime? Sometimes even your beauty is too precious for me. So don't you come around here and get me down. Don't you come around here and get me down.
like this song? How do you feel about it? I like the song. I know what you mean about the, the guy that played the horns at the beginning. That's not our normal. That's not Neville. So, because yeah. that's a, that's a that's a soprano. Um, again, you know, just checking things. Yeah, I like the song. I think there's something in the song. Again, when I do it live, it seems to connect with people. Again, it's one of those kind of positive mantra things about moving on and self-fulfillment, mixed in with some kind of minor chords for the verse, which kind of evoke things again that were happening in my own personal life. So uh, it's like it's that mixture of things. They all they all kind of songs are pertaining to a particular, you know, the probably 18 months or nine, a year in my life, and that's that's quite difficult to recall exactly names and faces and addresses and phone numbers, but they would they would you know they're all based on on kind of what was happening to me and how I was feeling at the time. So um, you know. I was, you know, deep down, I think I was thrilled to be, you know, in London, in a group, making records, and knowing that this record was better than the first one, and that there was something good about it. this. Is before we had a hit, you know, and thinking, yeah, this is great. There's something good here. This feels really good. Well, what I'm hearing back here is low monkey music. It sounds original. It sounds fresh. And the band were responding to that as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, it, there were good feelings in the studio during this period when we made the record. Mm. Good, good, yeah. okay. Despite the fact that, you know, I was trying to, you know, some of the lyrics and some of the chords, that was quite dark. But nonetheless, you know, there, there was kind of an uplift in the chorus. Good, okay. And uh, yeah. and when you were, when it was on the store shelves and everything, you were proud, like, this is our album and we love it and we're happy with it out there and everything like that yeah i was fucked off with the sleeve <laughs> uh, right. but, um, but yeah no of course it was it was a thrill and it, and, and it wasn't just you know it was like i said it was that it suddenly became a global thing of it yeah. you know it wasn't it wasn't number one around the world but but it was in the top 20 top 40 in most countries uh so everywhere we went that record was there so it suddenly felt like, oh God, you know, we existed, you know. Yeah, yeah. I it was totally a, it was a that. real life changer, yeah. Yeah, when you um, when it gets categorized as sophisticated, do you does that bother you when your music becomes? I don't know if you feel like it uh, minimizes the effort to call it one thing, especially if it's a subgenre. Does that bother you at all? No, it doesn't bother me. I mean, okay. I, I don't think it's accurate. I don't know what the fuck that means, sophisticated right. pop. Whatever it is, we're not. <laughs> but, um, but you know, what can I do about that? I'm not going to yeah. lose sleep over it. It's all, okay. you know, do these things just, you know, some people get affected. Some people like it. Other people will never hear it in all their lives. I really don't, you know. Yeah. What can I do about that? Once I've, once I've, I've made it, uh, it's it's gone and it's out into the universe and and. And what will be will be, and if somebody wants to call it that, well, fair play. They can, you know, they can call yeah. it what they want, really. But, okay. but no, yeah, it doesn't make much sense to me, though. No, no yeah. but so, <laughs> whatever that is, because I, I never thought that we were sophisticated. I've always thought of myself as a very basic musician in that mm-hmm. sense that I'm not, I'm not particularly adept, you know, on any instrument or particularly clever with any of that. I just. I, I'm much more of a feel person, mm-hmm. but um, so there's nothing really sophisticated about what we do. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess uh, you know, if uh, whoever you know, whoever gave us that label sees it that way, that's fine. Okay, 
I was just it's listed as the 11 according to classic pop magazine it's listed as the number 11 best sophista pop album of all time which is right. a, which is nice uh, you know it's up there with Johnny Hates Jazz and Simple Minds or uh, Simply Red and those kinds of things and that's all great I love those bands too but as I said the more I listen to this album and live with it it's much grittier and organic more organic than I think people m might realize uh, if they only take yeah, it at face I mean, value if you if if you put a record of ours on from that period alongside those bands that you mentioned, I think you can see that we're, we're, we're from a very different place. Yeah, I do. I do see you know? that. Yep, I do. And, uh, you know, uh, especially if you listen to our first record, you'll see that, mm -hmm. you know, we're not, you know, so, so and, I, and I think that, so the teeny boppers that got into us for a little while after digging would come and see us live and they would be in for a shock because we were much tougher and less professional probably and rawer than they expected mm -hmm. which I was I was happy with because you know I've always you know I mean I started off being in a band because of punk mm -hmm. and although we, although we were never punk and we were never trying to be punk there's something of that aesthetic was always inside me there's something that always felt that you know I wasn't gonna I wasn't really at ease in that kind of mm -hmm. showbiz world, mm -hmm. I wasn't made for that. There was always, I was always too spiky for that, either musically or in what I might say to people or whatever. And that's because I just, I just did not feel comfortable. And it probably, probably would have been better had I done that. I could have probably been bigger, had a better career mm -hmm. in terms of public kind of perception and all that. But I wouldn't change it for the world because I think the music was really where it matters, and that's what's got me through it all. Good, yeah. Good. Well, and I think anyone who's yeah. been following you would know that you've always done this your way and uh, never really pandered to anybody. And um, that's what makes you you. That you you're you not a punk. You, you don't your music's not punk, but you have that aesthetic at your soul or at your core. At least I think so as someone who observes from afar, you know. Yeah. 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 Okay, and uh, well, listen. I've been it's, I've been doing some interesting stuff recently. For, as a, um, there's a there's a label called Monks Road, and I've been doing the uh, it's called the Monks Road Social, which is like a a big collaboration. And I've been producing it, but I've been put. I've, I've got about eight songs or ten songs on there as well. And, and I'm, so, if you send me a you send me well, I've got your email. I'll, yeah. I'll send you a link to this stuff that I've been working on because I think you might you might like this. I would love that, and that was. Yes, I, I, I w that was going to be like my last question. I mean, the Wild River came out, I think, in 2017, and that was really good. And I know you guys just wrapped yeah. up a mini tour with Level 42, which would have been yeah. just about the most dreamy double bill I can imagine in my lifetime because I love you both so much. What's the is it the Monks Road stuff? Is that what the future? That's what is that what's in store right now? That's coming out in February, and I've just recorded another album with them. Um, so that's yeah. kind of where I'm producing that, and that's got all lots of different artists. And obviously, I'm doing a few songs, but like I said, it's got it's got about ten of my songs on it as yeah. well. Okay. So um, yeah, that's kind of where I put my thing. But at the moment, I've just about finished an EP of lo-fi pop. Really? I've just, uh, I've just, yeah, I've just recorded it on. Uh, I bought a, a, something called a Casio Tone 501, which was a very early keyboard with a drum machine in it that I got at a car boot sale. Huh. And uh, I've, I've just made an EP with that, so that'll be coming out soon. And is so, that a Blow Monkeys EP or a Dr. Robert no, EP? That, that'll be a, no, that'll be a Dr. Robert one. Okay. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Good. 
Yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you. I'll, I'll send you the link. I'll make sure you're on the on the. Uh, you get a download and all that stuff. I would love that. Thank you. Uh, well, look, Robert. Let me. I want to tell you. Um, I, so I started this thing almost exactly four years ago because I wanted to shed a light and get to know the artists that I love that I don't hear from often enough. How are they doing? What are they doing? Let them know they feel loved. If they ever wonder if they're, you know, they're in obscurity and their career didn't manage to be what they wanted it to be. I wanted them to know that I cared. And after talking to several hundred of my absolute favorite rock stars in this world, the, the moment that means the very most to me of all is you talking to me almost three and a half years ago. So I just wanted you to know that uh, it, I can die happy knowing that I got a few minutes of Dr. Robert's time. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> oh, you're very kind, that was very kind. It's very true too. There you have it, Dr. Robert and Animal Magic, one of my top 10 favorite albums of all time. If it's new to you, please go check it out. Keep an open mind. I know that there are people out there, I don't understand them, but there are people out there who discredit anything that may have come from the 80s or may have horns on it or Lynn drums or too much synthesizer or too much makeup or whatever it is. I hate that kind of thinking because it's so narrow-minded. Why can't we just like what we like and not feel silly about it? So please give it a chance if you're new to it. And if you're a fan already, I hope you heard some things that you like and that were new to you and just expand your appreciation of this album. I wanted to say too, we touched on it in here, although I didn't want to get into it too deeply. There is a deluxe edition of this album that I would highly recommend for anyone who already is a fan of this. If you don't have it, it comes with a lot of demos. Hearing some of these songs in demo form is fascinating. There's remixes, there's a lot of B-sides. So if you're a Blow Monkey super fan and you don't have the Animal Magic uh, Expanded Edition, I would by all means check that out, okay? Um, anyway, that's it for February. We're looking toward March. I've got a bunch of these lined up already. In fact, it's gonna be hard keeping these to one a month, to be honest. So anyway, hope you enjoy this little series of ours. We will be back next Tuesday. If you are new to this, if you're a Blow Monkeys fan and Dr. Robert shared this with you and you've never heard of us before, please go into our archives and see what else. I guarantee you, if you're a fan of the Blow Monkeys like I am, there are a number of other interviews in our archives that you will appreciate, okay? Thanks everybody, and a huge thanks to one of my heroes, Dr. Robert, thank you. We'll talk to you all later. <laughs>